Good morning. My name is Matt Morton. I'm the teaching pastor over at our Creekside campus. Excuse me for just a minute. Since I'm right-handed, this will bug me for 40 minutes, so I'm going to move it over here. We're going to be in Psalm 139 this morning, so if you've got a Bible, go over to Psalm 139 as we continue in the book of Psalms. Some of you may be aware of this, some of you may not, but the smallest town in the United States is near the border of Nebraska and South Dakota. It's called Manawi, Nebraska. Manawi, Nebraska has a population of one person. Uh, It is the only town in the United States that is incorporated that has a population of one. It's populated by a woman named Elsie Eiler. Elsie Eiler is now in her early to mid-80s, 83, 84. Uh, And uh, Manawi, Nebraska is over 100 years old. Uh, It was founded in 1902. At its peak in around 1930, there were 150 to 200 people there. The railroad went through Manawi. But uh, like a lot of towns that are rural like that, over time, it kind of declined. Younger people moved away to the cities. The railroad moved away. So that by 2000, when they did the census, there were two people in Manawi, Elsie and her husband. Elsie's husband died a few years later, and she stayed. So she's the only one. Uh, She is the mayor of Manawi. Uh, I don't know if they have elections or not, but if they do, they're quick affairs, and she's always reelected. She pays herself taxes of about $500 every year. That money goes to maintain the road that goes through town. And they actually have four streetlights, believe it or not. She owns the tavern. She issues herself a liquor license every year so that she can sell alcohol at her tavern. And uh, that's it. People drive through. They eat at the tavern. Elsie lives there all alone and will presumably until she decides to move away or she passes away, at which point the town will be no more. A town of one. Now let me ask you this. Uh, When you hear that story, how does it make you feel? For some of you, you think, man, that feels and sounds fantastic. I would love to be all alone with no people to talk to, nobody to bother me. I want to live the life of a hermit, right? If that's you, there are counselors for that kind of a, of a thought process, right? The reality is you may want to be alone for a little while, but if you're honest, you don't want to really be truly alone. Even Elsie Eiler does not live in utter isolation and aloneness. She has friends. There are people who come by to see her. She has neighbors. She has family members. She doesn't live in utter isolation, right? So uh, when you hear that story, you may think, I want to be alone. But there may also be a part of you uh, that you think, you know what? On one level, being alone is how I feel a lot of the time. On one level, if we're honest, there are times in our lives that we all feel like we are an isolated community of one, Mortonville, population one, and it's me. Nobody understands really what's going on in my heart and mind. Nobody is really with me in those moments of pain and distress. I'm all alone because nobody gets me. Maybe you're a college student and you have some roommates who are great friends, but when push comes to shove, you recognize they don't understand everything about you, do they? They don't really know everything going on inside your heart and your mind when you are anxious, when you are fearful, when you worry about the future, when you are in pain because of some broken relationship. They may understand a portion of your heart, but they don't understand all of it. 
Maybe you're in the room and you are single and lonely and desperately would like to get married. And you wonder why you feel alone. You want somebody to understand your thoughts. Or, Or even worse, maybe you are married and you feel alone. And you live with a person that you hoped would share your most intimate thoughts and feelings and you feel isolated. Everybody who has been married, everybody who has been single, everybody who has lived on this earth knows what that feels like because the reality is that even those who are closest to us sometimes don't get us, do they? So all of us have these moments where we feel alone, misunderstood, and out of control. And that feeling is particularly scary when we're in the midst of crisis. When we face death or sickness or the sin of our own hearts or broken relationships and we feel like we're alone and we wonder, does anybody even care? If you've ever felt like that, You're in really good company because King David, the writer of the majority of the Psalms, the biggest group of Psalms in the Bible, King David felt like that a lot. In fact, a lot of the Psalms that David wrote centered on this theme of feeling alone in the midst of crisis. If you have read anything about David's life, you know that David's life, like many of ours, it really was kind of a series of crises, one after another. David, as you may know, had multiple wives and at different times, some of those wives hated him or were embarrassed by him. Uh, David had a whole lot of kids. One of his kids, Absalom, actually tried to overthrow David's government. David had a military leader, Joab, who was just out of control. And so here's David uh, trying to lead the nation of Israel and even those who are closest to him often betray him and they certainly don't understand him. And so in the Psalms, as David writes these songs, over and over again, we see this theme emerge of David feeling alone and misunderstood in the midst of crisis. Psalm 22 may be one of the most famous ones in that regard, right? Psalm 22 comes right before Psalm 23. We love to quote Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And we talk about God's presence with us in the midst of trial, but Psalm 22 begins very differently. My God My God, why have you forsaken me? It's the same one that Jesus quoted on the cross as he cried out to his father in loneliness. Psalm 22 goes to the very depths of that feeling of isolation. And yet what David does, even at the end of Psalm 22, is he says, no, the truth about God is this, that even though I feel abandoned, I'm not abandoned. Even though it feels like God doesn't hear me, I know that God does. Even though it feels like God is absent, I know he's present. Even though it seems like God doesn't know, I know that he does know. Right? Psalm 139 that we're going to look at this morning doesn't take us quite as low as Psalm 22. It doesn't go quite to those depths of anguish. But Psalm 139 essentially centers on this same theme. We don't know what the specific instance in David's life was that prompted him to write Psalm 139. But it's one of these instances in his life when he feels all alone, 
like nobody understands. And so here's what David decides to do. And this is critical because this is where we're going to land this morning. David says, in the midst of all of this pain and loneliness and isolation and crisis, I'm going to remind myself of what's true about God. And so one by one, David takes us in Psalm 139 through the realities of God's character. A lot of times we read Psalm 139, and if you've ever read a commentary about this psalm, or you've ever read a theological, sort of a systematic theology, Psalm 139 is kind of known as the omni-psalm, right? We deal with the attributes of God. He is omniscient, right? He knows everything. He's omnipresent. He is everywhere. He is omnipotent. He controls everything in the universe. All of that is true, but none of those omnis really get at the heart, I think, of what David is saying here, right? Those omnis are true, but David takes us one step further. And it's, it's the critical point of the psalm. Uh, those omnis, the, the fact that God is here, the fact that God knows, the fact that God is in control, that is what provides me with the strength and courage to keep moving, even in the moments of life's deepest crises. Some of you are in the middle of crisis right now. Some of you have just come through a crisis. Some of you... You don't know it yet, but are about to experience one. And the reality is that at any given point in our lives, most of us would probably say, you know what, not everything is going like I wanted it to go. Some of you have been in a crisis of some kind for years with your health, with your family, with your marriage, with your work situation. And you feel alone. And when you, like David, lie awake at night, your temptation is to say, nobody knows. Nobody cares. There's no hope. This will never change. And yet what David does in that very same kind of moment is he says, what I come back to for my hope is the power and the knowledge and the presence of of God. So look at Psalm 139 with me this morning. Starting in verse 1. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. You have enclosed me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain to it. The first thing David says about God's character is this. God knows everything. Now, again, that sounds obvious to us because he is God. But as you look through the passage, here's what David is getting at. He says, Lord, you have searched me and known me. That Hebrew word to search something out. That's often used when you would send a spy or a scout, for example, into new territory. There's some area that you don't know what's out there. And so you say to this scout, I want you to go and search it out. Think of the 12 spies who went into the land of Canaan. And God says, I want you to send these folks out there and search it out. Figure out where the hills are, where the valleys are, where the cities are, where the people are, how strong they are, what kind of fruit grows there. Everything you can find out. 
That's the idea of to search. And here's what David is saying is that God knows the topography of your heart and your spirit and your mind to an infinite degree. Lord, you've searched me and you know me. You know everything about me. All right, I think one of the biggest struggles we all face is again that feeling of nobody really understands me. If you're of a certain age, you will remember one of the most popular songs of 1988 by DJ Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince. If you're not of a certain age, the Fresh Prince, we know him now as Will Smith, the actor. DJ Jazzy Jeff's career didn't go in the same trajectory. (laughs) But the song that was so popular in 1988 was called Parents Just Don't Understand. Right, some of you remember it. I, I'm not going to sing it for you this morning. I could. It would be great. But I'm not going to. Parents just don't understand. What was the idea behind parents just don't understand? Well, it's pretty self-explanatory. Anybody who has ever grown up has had that feeling of my parents just don't get it. I was in junior high when the song came out. And I remember thinking, yes, he gets me. They don't understand. We all know what that feels like, but it's not just parents, is it? Every single person in this room who is married, I'm guessing, has had a moment where you are in a, shall we say, a discussion with your spouse, and you look at that person and you think, it's like we're speaking different languages. They don't get me. The things that I'm saying are not falling on their ears correctly, and the things they're saying don't sound like anything a rational human would say. And there's this gap in understanding. Even your best friends, even your closest relationships, there's often this lack of understanding. And so David says, that's how I feel. And in the midst of that feeling, David reminds himself, Lord, you searched me and known me. He says, you know when I sit down, you know when I rise up. Right? God knows what you're doing today. He knows what you did yesterday. He knows what you're going to do tomorrow. You don't have to send him your Google calendar. He's got it. He knows. Even before there's a word on my tongue, Lord, you know it. He knows what you need before you even understand what you need. And God knows. He knows that Monday morning, as you work at your desk or as you are at home with the kids or as you are studying for classes, you're going to work hard for three or four hours. He knows right around 1130, you're going to think tacos, right? Before you even understand what's going on in your heart and mind. He knows that when you feel that dull ache of loneliness begin to creep up in your heart and mind, he knows what you're feeling. When you feel anxiety, When you're sad, when you're stressed, says you scrutinize my path and my lying down. You're intimately acquainted with all my ways. You've enclosed me behind and before. There's nowhere you're going to go that God doesn't see or understand. There's nothing you're going to think about or feel that God doesn't know. You are completely understood so that in those moments when we hear that lie, nobody gets me. David says, God gets me. God knows. There's no corner of your soul that he is unfamiliar with. 
when I was in seminary, my wife Shannon was a school teacher. She taught sixth and seventh grade English literature. And uh, that's an interesting age to teach in a classroom uh, because it's often hard, like, like younger kids do, it's hard to make sure they're listening, make sure they're not talking to one another, make sure they're getting the concepts. And one day she had me come in to teach a guest lecture on poetry or something like that. So I got up at the front of the room and I began to teach this lecture and uh, I realized while I was up there something I had never realized about the classroom before. And, And this is a secret that no one had ever told me. And it was this, from my perspective as the teacher, I could hear everything they were doing and saying. Right When those seventh graders were whispering to one another and they thought I could not hear them, I could hear them. They weren't as sneaky as they imagined. Right? And this was remarkable to me because when I was in seventh grade, I imagined that I was unheard at the back of the classroom when I was passing notes, when I was whispering with my friends, when I was causing mischief. And I realized what's going on is the teacher actually sees virtually all of it, but only chooses to directly address those things that are the most egregious that are going on. As I've thought about that over the years, I've thought to some extent... That's how we stand before God. We're not aware that he sees and knows every aspect of our hearts. Our joys, our pains, our sins, our victories. Every aspect. David says, God, you've searched me and known me so that in this moment of crisis, when it seems like nobody even understands why I'm stressed, Nobody sees the depression of my heart. God sees. So he says, God knows everything, not as some abstract theological concept, but David says it to remind himself, God knows me right here, right now. Okay, moving forward, verses 7 through 12. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me and the light around me will be night, even the darkness is not dark to you and the night is is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. Not only does God know everything, God is everywhere. God is everywhere. The way that David frames this is uh, using a figure of speech that we call mirrorism. Right? Mirrorism is a way of taking the extremes and using them to say, you know, left, right, up, down, and everything in between, right? So here's what he does. Notice he says, look, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? He says, if I go up to heaven... You're there. If I go down to Sheol, Sheol was the realm of the dead, the underworld. It says, whether I'm way up here, whether I'm way down here, God, you know where I am. You're there with me. I can't get away. And everywhere in between, everywhere on earth, God is. Then he says, look, if I take the wings of the dawn, 
or I go to the remotest part of the sea. If you think about where Israel was positioned, the sun, of course, rises in the east. The wings of the dawn would be over on the east, but the remotest part of the sea would be where? Over on the west as they looked out to the west of their country. East or west, up or down, no matter where I go, God is there. You cannot get away from God, light or dark, and everywhere in between. There's no escaping God's presence. Even when you feel like you're alone, you're not alone. Even when it seems like nobody is with you and everybody has run away, David says, I know I'm not alone because there's nowhere I can go that the Spirit of God is not there. Do you ever feel alone? I do. I have felt alone in various ways at different points in time throughout my life. As if I'm out on a limb in the middle of crisis and there's nobody there. It's just, it's just me. I was reminded this week of an incident from my life from when I was eight years old. At the time, my family lived in Lafayette, Louisiana on a cul-de-sac. There were seven or eight houses on this cul-de-sac. And down at the end of our street, there was a large house that sat on about four acres of property. And there were two little girls there. And so sometimes my brother, my older brother and I would go down to their house and we'd play in their backyard. And in their backyard was a hill. And at the bottom of that hill was the Vermilion River that ran through Lafayette. So the the river ran right through their yard. And one day we were playing in their backyard and they had uh, a roller sled. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen one of these, but it's basically like a snow sled with wheels. And so you could sit on it and go down this hill. And so we were taking turns going down the hill. And at the last minute before we plunged into the river, we would jump off and drag it back up so the next person could go down. After we did this a few times, my older brother, who always was coming up, with clever and dangerous ideas that always ended up in me injured and not him, said, why don't we get on the roller sled together? Both of us. We'll go faster that way. So we did. He sat on the front and I sat on the back. And we got going down that hill. And about halfway down the hill, we were rolling so fast. I thought, we're not going to stop before we hit that river. And I began to panic. And so I leapt off the back of the sled. And as I leapt off, I scraped my knee on a rock on the ground and just split it open. And so I'm on the ground and I'm eight years old and I'm crying and my knee is bleeding And all of my friends and my brother gather around and they see what's going on and they all ran away. (laughs) They all ran away and left me on the ground all alone in the middle of my pain. And here I am, what am I going to do? I was too afraid to get up and walk. I was young. I thought maybe my knee was going to fall off. or so. So I'm sitting there crying. I don't know what to do. And this is absolutely true. All of a sudden, Out of the the trees, this man comes running and he says, are you okay? And I'm crying and he picks me up and he carries me home and he hands me off to my mom. And then he went back down the street, presumably back to the trees. My mom said, who was that? I said, I don't know. I thought you knew him. Keep in mind, there's only seven or eight houses on the street. They didn't know him. I didn't know him. I only saw the guy one other time in the year and a half that we lived there. And that was one day I was walking our little dog. He was about the size of the head of a mop. And uh, as I was walking him, this German shepherd broke the boundaries of his own yard and came after my dog and proceeded to just try to rip my dog apart. 
And this guy pedaled up on his bicycle. I'm not making this up. And he split the dogs apart. And he put the German shepherd back in his own yard. And then he said, you okay, son? I said, yes. And then he rode away on his bicycle. And I never saw him again. Now, I've thought about that over the years. And my parents laughed. And they said, obviously, you have an angel. And I don't know. I don't know to this day. Was this just a guy who just kind of was on the alert all the time? This just went around the neighborhood helping kids out when they were alone. But I've always thought about that moment in retrospect and thought, you know, when I was alone or I thought I was alone, the reality was I wasn't. And whether this is an angel or a normal guy on some level, it's a reminder to me, you know what? God saw, God was there, God knew my aloneness and he sent rescue. That's what David is getting at. You're not alone. You're never alone. For David, this was a source of the deepest comfort. Because remember, David's life was marked by moments of loneliness, of his friends abandoning him, of terrible betrayal. He says, where can I go from your spirit? There's there's nowhere I could go where you're not there. Even if I wanted to try to run away, I could not run away. This is why the book of Jonah is one of the funniest books in all of the scripture. Because God says to Jonah, Jonah, I want you to go preach to the Ninevites. And Jonah says, I don't like them. I'm not going to do it. So he gets on a boat to try to sail away from God. Not only does he get on a boat, he climbs down into the hold of the boat, under the boat, Presumably because he believes, if I'm down here, sailing west, underneath the boat, God will not find me. And of course, the rest of the book is about how terribly wrong Jonah was. You can't get away. You know, I'm always hesitant to mention a song lyric in any sort of critical way. Fortunately, this isn't a song we did this morning, or I wouldn't be saying it. There's a song that, that I've heard, even right now, it's, Holy Spirit, you're welcome here. Come flood this place and fill the atmosphere, right? It's an invitation for the Holy Spirit to come. And I get the heart behind the song, but here's, here's the, the small problem I have. He's already here. The Holy Spirit is not waiting for our Evite. He's here. The only question is, will we listen to him and trust him? And obey him. You can't get away from the Spirit of God. He's in this room. He's also at your house. He never, he's, there's nowhere you're going to go that he is not. And for David, this was a source of deepest comfort. When our oldest daughter was two or three, she was really afraid at my parents' house of the sound of the toilet flushing. She would lie in her bed and there was a bathroom that shared a wall with this bedroom and when the toilet flushed, I guess the pipes in the wall would make a loud noise and she would just burst into tears. And I remember one of our key phrases at that age was, God is always with you, even when the toilet flushes. God is always with you, even when your friends aren't there. God is always with you. When the reality of sickness and death and loneliness 
and sin and misunderstanding crowd so closely into your world that you can't see anybody else around. God is there. He's everywhere you go. And David says, because of that, I know that I can trust him. God is everywhere. Continuing, verse 13. For you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. When I awake, I'm still with you. Here's where David goes. Not only does God know everything, not only is he everywhere, but thirdly, God's plan is perfect. God's plan is perfect. And the way David gets into this concept about God's plan is by starting with his own creation. And he says, when I was in the womb, God, you knit me together carefully with a plan. Now, I'm not a biologist or a physician, but I know that the human body is unbelievably complicated. I read, and I I don't know for sure if this is 100% accurate, but I have read that in the human body there are 60,000 miles of blood vessels. Enough blood vessels to loop the earth two and a half times, if that gives you an idea. 100 billion neurons in your brain. 100,000 hairs on some of your heads. God knows how many there are, right? Some of you, it's just easier to count than others. But you and I are created with complexity and planning. And here's where David is going to go. He says, if God created me that carefully, right? He didn't slap you together. He wasn't like, here's a leftover piece of something here and something here and... He he planned it out from before you were born and knit you together in the womb. He says, if I worship a God that great, I can trust him. I can trust his plan. He's never out of control. There's never a crisis that God goes, ah, I hadn't thought about that. That's never going to happen. God knows everything. He is everywhere, and his plan is perfect. I couldn't help but think about Acts chapter 17 as I was thinking about this passage this week. Acts chapter 17, Paul stands on Mars Hill in Athens, and he preaches a sermon to these pagans. And in the midst of this sermon, he says, God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him. Here's what Paul is saying. Here's what David is saying. God has arranged the world so that in the final analysis, we can trust that his plan is best. We can trust that God knows what he's doing. We're not going to get to the end of the story and God says, oh, I forgot a page. So even when we don't see what's going on in the midst of 
crisis. God sees. The God who knit you together, David says, he wrote the days of my life in his book before I was born. This is David's version of that oft-quoted passage, Romans 8, 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Now, I want to be careful here. Uh, Paul is not saying, and David is not saying, that everything is good. We live in a fallen world. Death is not good. Evil is not good. Sin is not good. But what they're saying is this. That in the plan of God, he has worked it so that even those things that the enemy intends for evil, as Joseph would say to his brothers, God intends them and moves them to good. This is the beauty, by the way, of the gospel itself, that Jesus died for our sin and rose again. Because in Jesus Christ, God took the sins and the evil intentions of even the Romans and the Jews who put Jesus to death and he brought about victory and eternal life so that God is writing a story that began before we were even around that will end in victory, that will end in life, that will end with the abolishing of sin and death and loneliness that will end with the abolishing of all crises and all pain. David says, I know that you have a plan, that your plan is perfect. Every Christmas, I, uh, just as a tradition at my house, I put together a 1,000-piece Christmas puzzle. My wife will go find one and buy a new one every year and bring it home. And so for the two weeks around Christmas time, I'll work on this puzzle while we're hanging around the house or watching TV or whatever. And it's just become something uh, that I do in the evenings uh, for my free time. Well, a few years ago, I, I had this beautiful puzzle of a painting of the nativity. And I spent a couple of weeks working on this puzzle in a painstaking manner. And when I got to the end of the puzzle, This is what happened. Now, I don't know how well you can see that from where you're sitting, uh, but there's a piece missing right there. Now, I don't know if you've ever done a 1,000-piece puzzle and had one piece missing, but it will make you question the goodness and sovereignty of God in your life. (laughs) I got to the end of this puzzle, and I went, you have to be kidding. I mean, I looked under the table. I looked under the sofa. I tore the house apart. We never found it. I don't know what happened. Maybe the dog ate it. Maybe one of the kids carried it off. None of them fessed up to it. They'll probably take it to their grave because of how frustrated I was. This still kind of evokes a little anger in my heart, even when I look at this puzzle. Now, the reason I share that is because I think that a lot of us, as we walk throughout our lives and we don't know what's going on and the the pain and the sin and the death and the sickness of our lives, it feels random and painful. We walk through our lives and we we, we suspect somehow that we're going to get to the end and God's going to go, I forgot a piece. I lost one. But David says, that's not going to happen. When we see the picture of what God is putting together, nothing will be missing. Nothing will lack sense or purpose in God's plan. 
David says, you knit me together in the womb. You've planned out your purpose for my life, for this nation, for your people. Your plan is perfect. And so where David ends in his psalm, verses 19 to 24, follow me for a moment. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, men of bloodshed, for they speak against you wickedly, and your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord, and do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with the utmost hatred. They have become my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. Here's where David ends. Because God knows everything, because he's everywhere, because he has a perfect plan, I can trust him. Now remember, David as the king of Israel, and and David actually, very specifically, he has a promise from God. You may remember the covenant God made with David. And he said, David, one of your descendants will always have the right to reign over Israel. Your line will never be destroyed. And in fact, it's through David's line that Jesus comes. And Jesus will one day reign not only over Israel, of course, but over the entire world. And so David, in the midst of his crisis, here's what he does. He says, I'm going to go back to the promise of God. These enemies, and we don't know who the enemies were. May have been a foreign power. It may have been his own family. But he says, these enemies will not prevail. And so he turns to God and he says, God, resolve this for me. Do away with your enemies and lead me into life because I trust your promises. And we don't have the exact same promise David had from God. We aren't kings of Israel. But we have an abundance of promises from God's word. When Jesus tells us that for those who know Jesus Christ, he's with us always, even to the end of the age, that's a promise. He's never going to leave. When the scripture tells us that all of these light and momentary afflictions are producing for us an eternal weight of glory that can't even compare, we can take it to the bank. When the scripture tells us that one day death will be destroyed and the enemy of God will be vanquished, sin will be abolished, we can trust him. And so in those moments, late at night, early in the morning, when we lie awake in our bed or we sit alone in a room and we think, nobody sees, I'm all alone. There is no hope. We come back to the reality that because of the promises of God and because how God demonstrated his power and purpose in the death and resurrection of Jesus, because of those things, we can trust him. He's putting together a plan that we don't see, but one that's perfect. One that will result in his glory And are good because he loves us. Let me drive this home for just a moment as we close. Think about the lies that you hear when you're in crisis. 
least the ones that I am tempted to believe. Nobody understands me. Nobody understands me. Nobody gets me. What's the truth? God understands me perfectly. And so we replace that lie with this reality. God knows. How about this one? I'm all alone. I'm all alone. No, I'm not all alone. God is always with me. Every moment of every day. Third one. My life is out of control. My life is out of control. Truth, God has a perfect plan. God has a perfect plan. And then fourthly, there's no hope for me. There's no hope for me. I don't know if you've ever felt that one. There's no hope. The the situation I'm in, it's never going to change. I've tried to change it for years. Truth is, I have eternal hope in Jesus because of the good news of Jesus Christ and the power and the promises of God. And so what we do, even though we don't understand, is we fill our hearts and our minds with what we know is true. That's what David does in Psalm 139. God sees and knows. He's always with me. He has a perfect plan, and there is always hope in Jesus Christ for those who trust him. Because of who he is, we're never alone. We're never unloved. We're never out of control. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for your word. I pray that You would drive this reality into our hearts and minds because all of us in this room, we wrestle with feeling alone, misunderstood, and afraid. Some in this room are undergoing severe crises in their life right now and just don't feel like anybody gets it. Remind our hearts that you do. Father, for others, the the crisis may start this afternoon or a year from now or 10 years from now. And I pray in that moment, your spirit, who is always present, would remind us of what is true in that moment, that we would come back to the reality of your word. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ. And we pray we would trust him because of all he's done for us to secure eternal life. And we thank you for this time, and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.